sometimes you know the Nazis are coming, and it's not that time. Go. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you about what right. Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to a new another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle. This week we are taking a look at Casablanca, and the theme we are looking at is exile. And to do that, I have a brand new guest. I have uh, Ivan Infante on the show, and I I wanted to bring you on months ago because I heard you on War Machine vs. Warhorse on the Hail Caesar episode. And everyone, and if you haven't listened to that, go find that and download it. It's it's a longer episode, but it's well worth it. There's lots of like great stories and information there from you. Mike very smartly just kind of sat back and let you talk. Uh, so that was a good choice. Finally, a good choice for Mike uh, to, to do that. <laughs> I heard you busted his balls on the last show. Uh, I was, it's constant. Wow. You could pick so any I episode. Couple, I got a couple Mike jokes in here today, so <laughs> we'll get to him later. <laughs> Perfect. Right on. Uh, so welcome to the show. Um, not only a podcast guest, but an author. So why don't you tell people you know, about your books and maybe where they can find them? Okay, um, as you said, my name is Ivan Infante. I write uh, under the name E. Ivan Infante, which is uh, how you can find my books. Um, the first, I wrote a series of books um, set in the 30s. Um, I, I've described them to people, or people have described them to me, actually, as vintage noir pulp fiction. So they're very violent books. They take place in the 30s. I did a lot of research as far as the language. And they're basically about uh, a couple of con men in Los Angeles in the 30s who are not quite good at enough at their jobs so they end up uh, sort of creating problems as opposed to tricking people um and uh, the first one is called false ransom the second one is called a uh, fixed bite they're on amazon they're like four dollars um and they're a pretty good read they're about 150 200 pages and they go pretty quick and you read them in sequence there's going to be three and i've done two so far nice. uh, another thing that i've done uh to pitch everything is a, a comic called cannibal detective which is also vintage noir. This one's set in the 40s. It's about a guy who um, has to eat other people to survive. So he starts a um, paranormal detective agency so he can hunt down villains and eat them. Um, it's called Cannibal Detective. And uh, finally, I'm going to get into the podcast game. Oh, nice. Uh, believe it or not, my friends and I are going to do, uh, my friend Lonnie Harris and another friend of ours, Yancey Burns, are going to do a show called The Clerk Cast. And uh, we're going to have that on um, SoundCloud and iTunes in maybe a week or a few weeks or a month whenever we're getting some of the materials <laughs> together. So I hope people would be uh, willing to check that out. And finally, uh, if you want to follow me, I'll follow you back. I'm on Twitter at Eddie Mars Attack, um, which is my uh, longtime uh, trolling handle from when I used <laughs> to uh, be really aggressive on uh, movie boards back in the day when that was still something i was uh, unenlightened enough to pursue <laughs> <laughs> nice so you mentioned you know getting into podcasting what is your podcast going to be about so because these people are podcast listeners so this is well i am a long time uh, video store manager and uh, um, i ran a very big uh, um, sort of showbiz oriented video store on the west side of los angeles for a decade um, i was next to fox studios i had clients accounts with caa and uta and william morris and i <laughs> so i I spent a lot of years doing that, and I have a pretty deep knowledge of some movies. And so 
it's kind of like everyone's uh, doing something sort of like it. But what I wanted to do was talk about movies like we're doing here, a movie that's coming out like Allied, sort of get into what about that movie um, has things in common uh, with other movies. In other words, nice. if you came into a video store, I would have a lot of conversations in the video store that was like, I really like this uh, movie with Denzel Washington. What are some other movies like it? And then I right. would have this discussion because movies can be similar in a variety of ways. It could be yeah. the same actors. It could be the same director. It could be the same style. It could be seen the same plot, same time period, same subject matter. And so anytime someone is really inspired by a particular movie, I, I always tried to recommend to them like sort of the roots from the tree that they could go down to see right. where some of these things came from. And um, that's what we're going to hope to do and nice. have sort of a conversational – um, bring you back to the video store days when you could come in and, and ask the clerk questions and talk to the clerk about about uh, what was out and what you should uh, maybe watch next. Nice. That sounds great. Well, you have at least one listener. That sounds like a great show. I'd love to. Love to hear. That's one right. By one. one by one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, getting to the movie we're talking about today, do you have a couple movie recommendations? Uh, you know, maybe some roots from the tree of Casablanca for our listeners to take a look at. Boy, do I have a ton. Um, <laughs> I believe um, it. it really depends on which way you want to go. Like, I think that, um, you know, superficially, um, there were some movies, um, that came out with Bogart around that era that are very much influenced by, uh, Casablanca. Um, they were, um, Passage to Marseille, which is a pretty good one to have and have not, which is a very good one. Mm -hmm. And another movie called Sirocco, which I think would be the less, um, mm -hmm. uh, famous of those. Um, but they're all sort of, uh, intrigue, uh, sort of film noirish movies, um, to have and have not is very similar to uh, Casablanca, and some people even refer to it as a sequel, as if the guy from Casablanca has gone to uh, Cuba, or I, I am sort of slipping me exactly where that is, uh, where the to have and have not takes place, so I think it's supposed to be Cuba, mm -hmm. um, and it, they're very similar, and so that would be a, sort of a superficial um, uh, comparison, and um, when you asked me about the theme being exiled, I started to think about, you know, other movies about exile, everything from like Thor, mm -hmm. where, you know, he... Thor gets kicked out of Asgard, so yeah. he's technically in exile, to a very sort of a rare film from 1961 called The Exiles, which is about a bunch of Native American young people who are exiled, who sort of leave their reservation and go live mm -hmm. in downtown Bunker Hill, Los Angeles. And it's very cinema verite, very black and white. It follows these people sort of as they make their way around downtown L.A. And it's a very important film. And it is about these people who are exiled within their own country. It's a good movie. Nice. All right. Awesome. I, you know, it's amazing. I think that's the first time I've heard that many recommendations and I haven't seen a single one of them. So now I've got some homework, <laughs> too, which is good. Of like, uh, movies. <laughs> if you like uh, um, Peter Laurie and Sydney Green Street in Casablanca, they did 10 movies together. I have them nice. right here if you'd like to go through <laughs> But um, for example, those two guys, I really, really like them, their roles in that movie. And I really like them as uh, performers. And um, they did do 10 movies together. Nice. Sort of always playing off those same roles that they had when they started uh, in uh, Maltese Falcon, which is the one they did before right. um, I guess and, that's like uh, the advantage of the studio system, right? Is if you get a couple people in the same studio and they really work well together, you're going to get to see them a lot. Yeah, I think if you get into a, uh, like a discussion of Casablanca, that's one of the interesting aspects. I mean, there's a lot of debate about the auteur theory or the Warner Brothers sort of model, mm. you know, because in a lot of ways, Casablanca was a function of like the way Warner Brothers made movies and, and the people that Warner Brothers had available to them with a few um, with a few exceptions. And right. so there's there's that element of um, um, Casablanca. But then there's also arguments of, of Michael Cortez and whether or not he was an auteur. And um, the guy that shot it, which I can talk about a little bit later, a guy named Arthur Edison, who also had a sort of unique style. And if you look at his background, man, the guy made a lot of cool movies like Invisible Man and Frankenstein and Old Dark House. 
and, and Maltese Falcon. He made a lot of good movies and he had a distinct look. So some people say that Casablanca is evidence that there's no auteur theory, you know, that Michael Curtiz mm-hmm. was a workman, that you couldn't really tell his movies from other movies. But then other people, if they point out some of the in- intricacies of the way Curtiz made movies, they sort of debate that. So Casablanca is a very interesting movie as far as that issue is concerned. All right, cool. So we're going to get to that. First, we're going to take a quick break and I'll talk about Exile and then we'll bring you back on to talk about Casablanca. I'll be here. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. <laughs> Better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So today we're talking about Exile. So uh, if you've watched this movie or know anything about it, I'm sure it'll be obvious to you why Exile is an important theme in the movie. Pretty much everyone in the movie is in Exile. But we'll talk about that more with, with E. Ivan Infante when he comes back. So Exile is just basically it's, it means to be away from a person's home, like their city, their state, or their country, while either being explicitly refused permission to return or being threatened with with imprisonment or death upon your return. It can be a form of punishment, obviously a form of solitude, especially if you're exiled on your own. So it's really common to distinguish between internal exile, like which is a forced resettlement within the country of residence, and external exile, which is deportation outside the country you're from. And of course, this is most commonly used to describe an individual situation, but it can also be used for groups, especially ethnic or national groups, or even for entire governments. So there's a lot of terms out there like diaspora and refugee, and that describes group exile, which uh, encompasses both voluntary and force. And government in exile describes the government of a country that has been forced to move and argue its legitimacy from outside the country. Exile can also be a self-imposed departure from your country or your state or your county or wherever it is you're leaving. Self-exile is usually a form of protest by the person that that is exiling themselves, and they they do it to avoid legal matters and persecution. So this could be like something something like taxes or criminal allegations. It can also be an act of shame or repentance, like you're isolating yourself in order in order to – or you can isolate yourself in order to devote time to a particular pursuit. And this is an important thing worldwide. There's actually something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and Article 9 of that particular document says no one shall be sub- subjected to arbitrary arrest detention or exile. So this is something that does happen and something that human rights organizations are very concerned with. So let's take a look at exile for individuals. Uh, Sometimes heads of state are exiled. So in some cases, a deposed head of state is allowed to go into exile following a coup, uh, which will allow a more peaceful transition to take place or to escape kind of vigilante justice. Uh, Other individuals will do it to avoid tax or legal matters, as I mentioned. So a wealthy citizen who departs from a former country to like kind of a lower tax area, sometimes called a tax haven, that's termed a tax exile. But that's, of course, not what we're really looking at in this in this film. Uh, But most times creative people like authors and musicians who achieve sudden wealth will sometimes find themselves uh, within that group. 
Now, the most, most common type we hear about are the ones that are leaving in order to avoid violence or pure persecution, especially in the aftermath of war. Lots of examples of this, like uh, Iraqi academics asked to return home from exile to help rebuild Iraq uh, back in 2009. Uh, Jews who fled persecution in Nazi Germany, and given our you know, our current political state, who knows if there's going to be some sort of uh, exile happening with certain groups, uh, and I certainly hope not, but it seems like it's, it's a definitely a scary time. So this is not something that doesn't affect us, doesn't touch us. Another example, people uh, undertaking a religious or civil liberties role in society may be forced into exile due to threat of persecution, like uh, nuns being exiled following the com- the communist coup d'etat in Czechoslovakia in the late 1940s, and Nazis after 1945 fleeing prosecution for war crimes. I think sometimes we think of like people in exile as people who are uh, who are innocent victims, um, I think we think of the term refugee a lot, but uh, groups that we may not think highly of, like Nazis, um, are also in exile, um, depending like once their once their power leaves. Now, exile is also really really popular in in drama, literature, movies. Um, it's a really popular motif in ancient Greek tragedy. In the ancient Greek world, exile was worse than death. So the kind of most uh, the the most extreme version of this uh, is in the play Medea, written by Euripides. So in that play, after Medea was abandoned by Jason and had become a murderer out of revenge, she fled to Athens and married the king there and ended up became, becoming the stepmother of Theseus. And due to a conflict with him, she had to leave and go away into exile. Um, so this is not only in the play, but it is shown in a in a painting by John William Waterhouse um, from 1907. So this kind of gets into all forms of art. Uh, in terms of literature in ancient Rome, uh, the Roman Senate had the power to declare the exile to individuals, families, or just regions, like giant regions of their um, of their kingdom. And one of the victims of this was the poet Ovid, who lived during the reign of Augustus. He was forced to leave Rome and move away. Uh, to a place now, which would be now termed as Constanta. And there he ended up working, he ended up writing one of his most famous works called Tristia, which uh, translates to sorrows and talks about these bitter feelings during exile. It's, you know, uh, we'll talk about it later during the episode, but we just did an episode on place identity and how important where you are, where you're from, where you live, how much that matters to how you survive and how you interact with the world. And imagine the bitterness of being forced, you know, uh, not by your own choice, but forced to leave and live somewhere else completely foreign to you. Now, one of the, the biggest periods of exile was uh, during the period of National Socialism after 1933. Many Jews, as well as a, a significant percentage of German artists and intellectuals, fled into exile, including authors like Klaus Mann and Anna Segers. Uh, so Germany's own exile literature uh, emerged and received worldwide credit. So, And these were people that most likely weren't in any danger because they were German citizens. But yet they were so disturbed by what was going on in their own country that they decided to leave and talk about what this exile was like for them. All right. So before we get back to the movie, I wanted to talk about one article, at least before we go. So um, this is from an article in 1996, and it was looking at mental disorders among refugees. And they wanted to look at the impact of the persecution and exile that these people were suffering. So so for many, many years, we've we've considered refugees at risk for mental disorder because they get exposed to all these all these stressful situations like violence and persecution, forced migration, living in exile as a minority in a foreign culture, all these things we already talked about. 
But yet there weren't that many studies because a lot of refugee groups were pretty migratory. So it was hard to get them uh, to be interviewed. It was hard to get them to take these tests, all that kind of thing, especially in the past. So they were looking to do two things, really. Uh, one, to describe the type and degree of mental disorder in these populations of traumatized refugees. And two, to analyze the relationships between psychiatric symptoms and dysfunction and also between sociodemographic backgrounds and the type of persecution and conditions in their exile. So what they did is they got 231 patients. And they gave them between three and five sessions, depending depending on the patient. And they used this for evaluation. They gave them a, a free psychiatric interview and then a standard interview, which describes sociodemographic background, traumatization, and their exile situation. They also completed the brief psychiatric rating scale, uh, the Hopkins symptom checklist, which is a symptom, uh, a checklist of symptoms, obviously, um, and then a checklist of 10 points of post-traumatic stress symptoms. And basically, here's what they found. They found that 46.6% of the patients had had a post-traumatic stress disorder according to the criteria for the DSM, which is insane. 46.6, half? I mean, that is, I mean, it just, I know it's just a number and I know it's just a small a small sample of 231 people. But basically you're saying if you are a refugee, you have as good of a chance to have PTSD as not. So just let that sink in for a second. That's that's a lot. But when they analyzed all these tests, they didn't reveal any particular predictors of of psychotic behavior, for instance. However, torture emerged as a really important predictor of emotional withdrawal um, and and psychomotor slowing. So the, the body itself will slow as well as the emotions being withdrawn. Also, age, gender, and the and employment or education would predict for anxiety and depression. So um, so if you had no job um, and if you had less education, you'd be much more likely to be uh, to have anxiety or depression. Uh, refugee status and no employment or school also predicted for more hostility and aggression. So really what we find here is that refugees are a population at risk for mental disorders. Past traumatic stressors and current existence in exile are actual risk factors for these. But stressors other than those discussed in this particular article are also important, particularly with psychotic symptoms. And we also know, and this makes perfect sense to me, that if a person is not fulfilled, if they don't, if they don't have employment, if they don't have education, then they're much more likely to experience these symptoms. So yes, a big risk factor is the fact that they've experienced this, but you can't change that. But what you can change is kind of how you react to it and what you do with your life. So it's really important that uh, as a field, we, we promote outreach to these groups. And luckily, as time has gone on, we've gotten actually a lot better. I mean, I know personally that there are um, there are definitely organizations that cater specifically to the mental health of refugees or those living in exile. So uh, I think we've, we've kind of gone over this enough. You know what exile is. You know that it can affect people poorly, not just physically, but also um, from a mental health perspective. So uh, that's it for the psychological section. We'll take a little break and then we'll come back with E. Ivan Infante to talk about Casablanca. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Peter, the host of Hydrate Level 4. On my show, I invite guests to come on and we review movies from our childhood and see if they still hold up. I've reviewed movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, True Romance, Real Genius, The Mighty Ducks Trilogy, and even serious movies like A Time to Kill. 
we have a lot of fun and reflect back on the year and talk about even the music and other movies that came out around the time of that particular movie's release. So find me weekly at followingfilms.com on the Following Films Podcast Network. All right, so now we're back to actually talk about the movie. So um, what I usually ask is kind of people's history uh, with this movie, and I'll give mine first, which will be pretty short. I think I saw this... I saw this once when I was like 16 and I was like, okay, I guess, I guess that's what a good movie was in the forties. Like I was not ready for Casablanca. It's just like, as, <laughs> as like what, like a, a junior in high school, I'm like, you know, this is not you know, for me. Is, me too. Me too. I have that written down uh, to talk about that. Like what, Casablanca is one of the few movies I experienced before I realized I was really into movies. Exactly. So I sort of saw it and I didn't quite – I liked it and I thought it was really interesting but right. so much of it escaped me Yes. until later. Absolutely. And then I think I watched it once more when I was like in my late 20s and I was like, OK, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to get what's going on here. And then and, and then it's one of those movies I've always owned but it's it's – it's also one of those movies where I'm never like, well, you know what? I'm in the mood to watch Casablanca. Like it's not one that – because it, it's it, – to me, it's an active watch. It's not something that you could just put on in the background. You know, right. and I think it's interesting that this movie – my wife watched it with me because she had never seen it uh, until wow. we watched it this week, which I was like, how have you been with me this long and not watch Casablanca? <laughs> she how do you liked it? Yeah, she liked it. Uh, she was surprised because – Everyone talks about the romance of Casablanca. I think that's the thing that gets brought up the most. And she was surprised at how, like, kind of dark and in some ways devoid of hope for a lot of the movie it is. Because she was expecting this, like, grand love story. And that grand love story is in there in the flashbacks. But I don't think it's a movie where you walk away going, oh, how romantic, necessarily. So she was kind of taken aback by it, surprised by it. Uh, but what was your uh, your kind of history with it? Well, well to, to just to say something about that, I think part of the interesting thing about the movie is how it uh, sort of is really about the irrelevance of your love story in certain circumstances, um, which is a dark way to look at it, because a lot of movies will present, you know, love conquers all. But this yeah. is definitely one where it's like, in some cases, you got to acknowledge that love might not be the critical thing at this moment. And you got to right. let it learn to let it go. You yeah, know? context it, is important contract. given what's happening in the world. Like, is your is your lost love really the most important thing, or is it like making sure people survive through the night? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in a way, it's anti-romantic. Yeah, uh, I think you know I, I would agree uh, with your wife. Uh, well, for me, um, I came to it the same way you did. I saw it and liked it when I was very young, but I didn't really understand what was so great about it. Um, I came back to it after I got into. Uh, early on a, a Bogart uh, uh, phase, and I started to watch a lot of Bogart movies. This is, again, when I was in my early 20s. And um, I started to see it in the context of his career and as a function of Bogart, but it wasn't until I started to get into the films of Michael Curtiz that I started to look at it like uh, like a real like complete piece and a really solid representation of the types of studio movies that were made at the time, You know, to put it in context, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So you brought up the director, so let's just jump into the direction. So what what jumps out at you as you as you watch this film in terms of direction or even it doesn't just be, have to be about him. You mentioned kind of the way the film is shot, which we'll just kind of put under this umbrella even though that's not necessarily the director's job here. Michael Curtiz a lot of times people say like, well, he just was an efficient dude who made a lot of movies. There's not a, a distinct visual style. Um and I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, there's a very interesting scene um, where uh, Bogart is talking to uh, Claude Rains and the camera follows them 
and they're moving the walls around and moving yeah. the furniture around. And if you pay attention, you realize that these camera moves and these pans are sort of in, sort of uh, ignoring the the internal logic of the space, mm-hmm. which in some ways is really interesting. Yeah, um, something you would think it, of from an yeah. auteur, not from yeah. like just a studio. Exactly. You know, like exactly. let's do it the same way every time. Yeah. But you do. But you also read these strange details, like supposedly the the movie, and I and you can kind of tell that some of the scenes are lighter than the darker ones. Mm-hmm. And supposedly there was a fight during the filming that um, the studio was unhappy that it didn't look like a nightclub because there weren't enough shadows. Mm. So then the, direct, uh, the director of photography um, and um, Curtiz, they sort of changed around how they were doing it. And then you could see some of these scenes are really heavy, uh, shaded in their sort of almost German expressionist in a way, especially right. like when the guy's playing the piano and he's in the bright spotlight and everybody else is sort of around in the darkness. Um, things like that, I think, make it like a really a really great example of, of the things that they could do in a studio on a set, because a lot of people don't realize almost all of that stuff was shot, you know, on a back lot that was being shared with two or three other productions at the time, right. including, and this is a great piece of trivia that I heard you guys joking about this on the, on the, on the episode with Mike, but I did read Wikipedia and I did find <laughs> <laughs> there was this really interesting thing. The plane at the end is a mini cardboard cutout That's and crazy. the way yeah, and the way they they structured it, they had uh, little people. I guess midgets is what they would. What be, they would have been called then, yeah. Yeah, performing so that the plane looked bigger. Huh. Right. Wow. And all these, and so you would look at Casablanca. So exotic locale. It's in Casablanca. No, no. They only went to the van. <laughs> they went to the Van Nuys Airport for like one day, and the rest of it is was all on the studio lot. Well, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, I like I said, I heard you on Mike's episode on Hail Caesar. And like if you look at that movie, like how many things are going on on the studio lot at the same time, like just the scheduling to make this possible and still make a movie that I think holds up in 2016. Like there's we'll talk about production value. There's a couple things that like obviously stand out as fake, but it's, you know, the 1940s. I mean, this is like 70, 80 years ago. Like, what do you expect? But like in general, I think 90 to 95 percent of this movie, like it stands up and there's a reason it hasn't been remade, even though I also read up on trivia. Apparently Madonna was trying to get this movie remade with her and Ashton Kutcher. And I was like, that sounds like the most awful. And for once, the studios were smart and everybody said no. (laughs) Like, so one of the things I really liked about the direction is the decision in the beginning of the film to not show Rick for the longest time. And at, at first, like basically all you get is like him from the back or you see his hands on a drink and you hear him speaking, but they don't reveal him. And that's kind of a, an interesting choice considering, I mean, I don't really know Humphrey Bogart's history, but this is a movie star. Like this is somebody, yeah. and actually like, this is a really strange comparison, but we talked about, we did an episode on Jack Reacher uh, and the decision. <laughs> I to, like Jack Reacher. I do too. It's great. It's, <laughs> the first one is fantastic. And the decision to like not show Tom Cruise, I got what they're trying to do, but the guy is so recognizable that you're like, what do you, I know it's Tom Cruise. What are you doing? Like, and I wonder, I found myself wondering in the 1940s, would this have, did this work like this kind of like we're going to hold back from showing you Humphrey Bogart because we know that's what you want to see. But for me as a viewer in 2016, it really worked and it really I think it also one of the the most interesting things I think about his character is until she walks in, how separate he is from the world, how 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 apart he is from everyone. And I think the decision not to show his face and to show everyone else in his nightclub really sets that up for you as a viewer. Like this guy is different. This is the guy you need to pay attention to. 
Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think he, you know, he, he makes a point about how he won't stick his neck out for anyone. Mm. And he does seem to be a guy that is stick, sticking in the shadows trying to avoid attention, you know, because of the scarring from the backstory that you find out later. Right. I think that's a that's a good that's a good point of view. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analysis, I guess you could say. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. That's a big word, analysis. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a big the other thing I noticed, there's, you know, you actually mentioned the the use of shadow and how like the there was this fight at the studio. Some of my favorite shots in this movie are just the silhouette of Rick, like kind of walking around, kind of back behind the scenes, and it's such a striking image. And some of it is simply because the film is shot in black and white, so like you get this starkness. And I just I just kept thinking as I see this, and every time I saw Humphrey Bogart on screen, I was like, even without seeing a lot of his other movies, like that guy is a fucking movie star. Like there's something about him. There's a presence he has, even for someone in 2016, where I'm like, okay, I need to pay attention when he's on screen. And he's so, and this is, of course, a role, like you said, he's played role similar to this before. And it feels like it's just made, it's tailor made for him. And he's so comfortable in it. And there's never a moment that it, you know, I'll say this on the show from time to time, like it doesn't feel like acting. If you like, it, he just inhabits this role of Rick, just like tremendous. And those shots of him in the silhouette, I think really harness kind of that power of who that actor is. Well, it's funny that there, there's scenes that there was actually notes from the studio where they didn't want him wearing hats um, because <laughs> when he wears hats, it was too much of his old detective mm. type. And they were trying to transition him at the time from being, you know, a B picture gangster type guy to be an actual romantic lead and an, an actual movie star. And they were successful at doing that. Um, yeah. And he went on to be a huge romantic lead and a huge movie star. Um, and they're very that, that was very successful. And I also like the silhouettes, especially Claude Rains when he comes in, mm -hmm. you know, the silhouettes. Anyway, but back to the hat. So there are scenes where he goes to talk to Sidney Greenstreet about selling the club. And those are the only scenes where both he and Sidney Greenstreet are wearing hats. Right. Huh, right. Sydney yeah. Green Street is wearing a, a, a you know, um, sort of like the uh, cultural outfit of Casablanca where he's got the fez, you know, right. and Bogart is contrasting that with the traditional, you know, um, American. Um, the name is slipping me a fedora type. The fedora, hat, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and in fact, another interesting studio note, uh, they didn't want Green, Green Street wanted to wear the robes. Mm. You know, he wanted to dress like he would be if he were a guy in Casablanca. And they said, no, they wouldn't let him. So he had to wear um, the white suit. And I think the interesting thing is the way that, you know, as you're talking about the theme of exile, it's a way to show that these guys aren't 100 percent committed to the place where they are. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, that... they're preserving elements of the uniform from the places they came from. And I, I think that is a really cool little subtext in the movie as far as, you know, that's just a little a detail of whether or not they're wearing hats in different scenes. Yeah, and not only the hats, but like what else they're wearing. Like I think that's actually becomes a really smart decision to have this kind of half and half thing going right. on where it's like you're between cultures. And they kind of talk about this in the beginning of the film, which I was like – because it's been so long since I watched it, I was a little worried. Anytime you have like a big prologue in a film and you just have like, let me spit out this expository stuff. <laughs> so you set up – I'm always kind of like, oh, God, is it going to be like this the whole time? Like what happened to show, not tell, you know? Uh, but there's very little of that. But it does basically tell you that everyone here is in exile. No one here is comfortable. And I think – I think Rick, even though he comes off as comfortable, he's not either. Like he's – you figure out very quick – you figure out eventually he's got this this past that is haunting him that he's constantly pushing aside that maybe only he and Sam know about in all of Casablanca, which I think is, is really interesting. 
Uh, but speaking of, of hers, uh, I love the way she shot in this movie. Like when she first shows up, like everything before that moment is pretty standard stuff as far as the shots. Like it, it's they're, they're not playing any tricks. And then she shows up and there's like this beautiful, soft focus going on. So and it's great visual language where you don't have to depend on like, well, I hope. I hope uh, the audience thinks she's pretty because they have to. Otherwise, none of these actions make sense. But to shoot it that way really shows you like, oh, this is. And to me, it was like, this is how Rick sees her. Like, this isn't even necessarily who she is or what she actually looks like. But this is what Rick sees. And that's what you need to see. And I also uh, I like there's some really creative blocking that goes on in this movie when the two of them are together. Because I think I think a lot of people who looked up Casablanca at all know uh, very well that she's actually a little bit taller uh, the yeah. Humphrey Bogart. So he was wearing platform shoes during the making of this film. You can uh, see him sit on cushions when they're on the couch together. That's exactly what I was going to bring up is the couch. <laughs> Not only is he sitting on cushions, but she's slouched. Yeah, so she looks yeah. even smaller. And I was like, and it was very interesting because I don't think the two times I watched it before, I knew that, but I knew that going in. So it's kind of looking for it. Like, how did they do this? But it's actually, it's pretty seamless. They do a pretty good job with it. None of it looks awkward like you don't notice that he's wearing high-heeled shoes you know and you don't really yeah. notice how the she's sitting or she's more standing. noticeable there's several really bad toupees in yes. That, yes that you can pick up on but to go back to what you're saying about uh bergman i think the movie and and the uh, cinematographer uh made a really conscious decision um to emphasize the things that made her really a special actor um both um, the way she would look and look down and look away from uh, mm. um, and the the other actors and 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 the way she could communicate so much without really uh, changing her expression at all, just by by moving her eyes. You'll notice that um, she was really she preferred the camera to be on her left side. So there's a lot of interesting staging mm. where they'll be shooting her from the left, which is also really interesting. Um, that is really one of the, I mean, one of the really, really great examples of um, the photography of the time where they really highlighted um, the things that were great about the way she looked and the way she performed. And, yeah. and like you say, it, it, it seems to play into uh, kind of the theme of the movie because it's so more like there's so much more adoration in the way they shoot her than most of the other things. Yes. Um, and and it, it, that really does stand out, I think. Absolutely. The last thing I want to bring up, and it's the thing, it, for some reason, it's the shot. I always remember this from this movie. It's it's the first thing I remember. Not the, not the goodbye, not the, it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, not here's looking at you, kid. But when he gets the note from her where she's saying goodbye, like through the flashback, I love the fact that it's, you know, of course it's raining, uh, you know, it's this terrible moment for him, but I love that the ink completely disappears and like, not only has she disappeared from his life, but kind of every trace of her disappears. And what an interesting, cool choice of him just standing there in the rain and you literally see his, the love of his life disappearing in front of his eyes. And it's something that, you know, it's, it might not even be in the script originally. And it's just a choice that the director made that I was just like, man, that's, that's brilliant. Like you don't see kind of subtlety like that anymore. Like I think that's a really great symbol uh, that I think first time view you might not even really catch. But as you rewatch it, you're like, oh, this is more than just just her leaving. This is more than just the note leaving. It's everything is trailing away in the rain as he has to get up and leave. Yeah, well, there's a couple. I mean, the funny thing about it, and I'll get this little trivia, is that his raincoat is dry in the mm. next angle. Right. So that's pretty funny. 
But also I think part of it is, you know, at the time you couldn't have a scene like you could today where the main lead male actor, you know, cries. Like right. that wasn't something that they would do. So there's an interesting sort of like metaphor with like externalizing the tears. So you can show the rain as his tears on the letter. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same effect. Like you're saying, you know, he's sad and it, and it establishes that she's going away out of his life and he's losing this incredible thing. But it also allows him to express like that sadness in an era where they would never show the dude like bawling, especially Humphrey Bogart, like the hard, yeah, no, I, like everything I, before I this, the hard boiled detective, like people would, I think audiences back then, especially would be like, nah, I can't get into this. I can't, I can't watch Humphrey Bogart. I can't watch Bogey yeah, cry. That's yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about the, uh, the acting now. So of course we talked a little bit about uh, Bogart and, and Bergman who are both just stunningly good in this movie. And I found it interesting. I also found out through kind of trivia searching that Humphrey Bogart's wife, uh, confronted him numerous times, assuming ah. that, uh, that he had cheated with Ingram Bergman because this they're was like Mayo method, whatever her name was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she was, I think very... she was more of a drinking buddy. I don't think their relationship was very <laughs> alcohol soaked. And, and I think it ended badly. Yeah. But like <laughs> their, their interactions on screen, their chemistry was so strong that she just couldn't believe that they actually hadn't had sex. And it ends up like, I guess throughout the shooting, they didn't actually talk to each other very much. Like they weren't, right. <laughs> they weren't connected at all. It was just all on camera, which is, which I think says a lot for their performances. And I think uh, one of the things about Bogart is so interesting that he plays this very tough, very strong, very masculine character, and yet has these moments where, he, like the scene where he's drinking alone, uh, and Sam kind of won't leave him, won't leave his side, and that's the moment we get. Where I think the moment we need where we, we actually care about this character instead of like this guy who remains distant, we realize, oh, no, this is a guy who remains distant because it's necessary for his sanity. Like he can't he can't connect anymore because he's been so hurt by this. And his performance in that scene is really, really good. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with that. I also I think it's an interesting um, sort of dynamic when they bring in, you know, Paul Henry um, to play this incredibly straight laced guy that you would think. Um, most people would root for because right. here he is, you know, an anti-fascist freedom fighter. You know, Good looking, yeah. <laughs> but he's really so uh, rule bound and and so stiff that you sort of end up gravitating to the guy that's not um, or doesn't appear to be on the surface who has to refine his moral center. You know that he's given it up, like it's not worth it to him. Uh, for me personally, I really like the Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, and the Claude Rains scenes. Mm -hmm. I think the chemistry uh, between uh, Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart is uh, it's incredible. really spectacular. It's, yeah. um, I'm a big fan of Claude Rains, and, and I, I'm a big fan of him in this movie. Not so much of his toupee, but of his performance. <laughs> I don't think um, anyone's a fan of that toupee. It's, it's <laughs> not good. <laughs> but I do think, uh, but I do think that, that for me, it's, it's those – those details of his relationship with uh, Sam and his relationship with the bartender and his relationship with the, the waiter and all these little things that are sort of put in there to round him out and, and realize that he's sort of a, a, a true like man of the people. He's friends right. with all these guys. You know, even when Green, Green Street tries to buy out Sam and tries to buy out the, the club at the beginning, Bogart has this loyalty to his people. And I think that those things sort of are, are true about him despite him having to really realize that it's okay to take the risk of being moral. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think he doesn't want to do. He doesn't stick his neck out 
for anyone. My favorite scene is is that one where uh, Peter Lorre has given him the papers, that whole scene where he talks to him and like, I bet you respect me now, mm-hmm. you know, and he says, maybe, I, you know, later at the end, he's like, maybe I do, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, Lorre, you know, the shootout and he doesn't stick his neck out for anyone. So this may um, delve into writing a little bit, but I, I was wondering what you thought about this, the fact that they make it a point to have him have this line about, you know, I don't buy and sell people. Right. It's very clear like that is his that is his line in the sand. Like he has no interest in that. And what do you think about the characterization of this of this black character, this black character of of Sam, who's kind of constantly by his side and a little bit servile throughout the entire movie? Granted, it's 1942. Not a lot of great roles for black actors in 1942. What did you think about kind of that characterization combined with that message of Rick's? Well, I think if you look at it, and it's I didn't do a lot of research on on this in particular, but I know from from what I know about Humphrey Bogart, which is a bit, that he was a very progressive fellow uh, at, for the time, and I think he was even called before the House Un-American Activities Commission um, or committee rather um, for his overtly leftist uh, political leanings. And so, especially in the trailer, that's one of the line, the takeaway lines from the trailer. And I honestly got the feeling that Bogart maybe was a little bit ahead of his time and trying to show that, you know, you could have a best friend that was an African-American guy, Mm -hmm. you know, that this could be a relationship that lasted over time and was one, you know, between equals because he gives Sam the chance to leave for much more money to go with someone else. He doesn't hide that offer from him or try and trick him or persuade him. He gives him that free uh, choice. And like you say, I mean, it's a movie from 1942, so. Right. You cannot you can go into the weeds about whether or not it's um, <laughs> something that we would like today. Um, right. Or you can look at it in the time and say, like, you know, uh, I think Bogart and I don't know if this is explicitly true, but I think Bogart was really trying to uh, send a message there a little bit ahead of its time. Right. Um, and a little bit. And I think you have to also look at it in the context of the war effort, because, we you know, the country was supposed to be coming together. So the right. civil rights issues and things like that, I mean, maybe to the detriment of the minority communities, I'm certain. But nonetheless, they were definitely trying to put some of these issues on the back burner. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, I think Bogart was really ahead of his time. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the some of the other actors other than our, our kind of main two. Do you have a favorite performance outside of uh, outside of Bergman and Bogart? To me, it's Peter Laurie. I think Peter Laurie is fantastic in this movie like and i i think it's very it's very clear why he kind of opens the movie like our first kind of enjoyable fun scene is between him and bogart which i'm sure i'll bring up in favorite scenes because i think i actually like ended up going back and rewatching that scene because it's so enjoyable like he plays it's interesting because it's it's a hard balance when you have a character who is who is underhanded at best. Like that is the nicest <laughs> thing you can say about him, but yet he's so charming. And I think you can even tell that Bogart's character is charmed by him too. Like, even though he doesn't agree with the things he does, he's always got this kind of wry smile about Peter Laurie's character. Like, all right. I think you know? he respects his, uh, his sincerity or his consistency, you know, that right. Laurie's I may be terrible, pretend- but I'm honest. Like yeah, he's <laughs> not pretending. He goes to him and he says, I know you hate me. So I've got it. So you're, I know you're trustworthy. I mean, that's a guy that knows himself, right? Yes. You know, that he's gone to his enemy for honesty, you know, and for help um, because he knows the kind of person he is. And I I think um, that that is a a wonderful performance and it would definitely be up there as one of my favorites. But I have to go back to the relationship between Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains Mm -hmm. and the sort of subtle communication of two guys living under a fascist system 
who don't agree with the fascism, can't come out and say they don't agree with the fascism because there's too much on the line, but can wink, with, wink, wink at each other over the course of the movie and sort of come full circle by the end to be like, you know what? We are together in rejecting this system. Right. You know, I think that is a really powerful sort of duet that goes on through the film. And it's definitely uh, my favorite performance. Even after they both turn guns on each other throughout the film at yeah. different moments. Still, like, right. we understand each other. Like, yeah, the, there's the no there's no grudge. Like, just yeah. like, OK. Because there's a way that you can almost see. And I think it's because Claude Rains is a great actor. But when Bogart first pulls the gun on him, I think Claude Rains has sort of gamed out what's going to happen. Right. And it's sort of like, okay, this guy's going to pull on a gun me. That's fine. You know, <laughs> right. we'll, you know I understand. I get this. it. Yeah. No way he's going to shoot me. But now that he's pulled the gun on me, I can do this without having to be worried about the repercussions. You know, right. so it's almost as if the, the, the subtlety of Claude Rains is like Bogart pulling a gun on him is almost doing him a favor. Yeah, it's a relief. Which, like, okay. Which is a, it's a relief. Like, now I don't have to make the moral choice. You're telling me to do it because you got a gun on me. You know, let's go to the airport. You know, right. it's, it's like okay, it, it's a, a and it's unspoken and, it, and it's a wonderful scene and and might be my favorite scene uh, in the movie. There, of course, at the end, you know, start of a beautiful friendship and those sort of things. But more the interplay, especially when uh, Stossel shows up, the German guy at the mm -hmm. end, and there's that the three of them there with the phone. Like, a little bit of that Star Wars. Uh, I was a like, Greedo shoots first, right? Yeah, Where, like, yeah. Exactly. The German guy's got to pull the gun up, and you can like sort of barely see it. In the right. angle, but you can see the smoke coming off because you got to know that he shot first. Yeah. Right. That that makes it OK for Bogart to gun him down at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't have our hero, especially at this time in cinema history. Like you don't have even if it's a hard boiled hero, someone who's dealing with like a moral discussion and figuring out who he is and what he needs to do. You still don't have him kill someone in cold blood like you got to you got to have a reason. There were lots of constraints like that, like the, the, the trick of not having Ingrid Bergman leave her husband for another man, the trick of not showing clearly whether or not they had sex back in Paris or whether they had sex in Casablanca, right. the way that they can't come out clearly but have to insinuate that Claude Rains is banging all the ladies that he's letting out of the country. Right. You know, like there's all these little things that they can't yeah. come out and say, but but we all know world, like, you know, so they know yeah. when you make a sort of a, an inference about something, you're like, oh, well, yeah, they're having sex, you know, like, right. <laughs> they're in a hotel room, you know, right. Um, they don't, they can't come out and say it. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people make the argument, oh, well, those constraints sort of, and, and the censorship allowed you, you know, to explore a more subtle and more sort of, uh, in sort of, I don't know, the word is, you know, subversive ways of showing those things. Sure. Um, but it also is a kind of constraint that really, I think the screenwriter said this, that it really keeps you, you know, the Epstein brothers it, that, that did a lot of work on the script, that it keeps you from really making art, you know, that you're making something that's not quite art because you're operating within these parameters. And I think that's something that, you, you know, you could discuss forever. And yeah, really I mean, you know, not to bring up a more modern example, but like it's, you know, granted, this isn't a studio constraint, but you look at like a movie like Spielberg's Jaws, right? People like will always bring it up like he's working under these constraints because nothing works and it ends up being... A, probably a better movie than it would have been if he got the shark working, right? But does right. that mean that's good for artistic integrity to have constraints? Not necessarily. I think you can make arguments on either side of that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what did you think about uh, about the script uh, for Casablanca? Well, you know, I, I, I like it. I find that there's some criticism of sort of some of the illogic things about the transit papers and why they don't just arrest that guy when he shows up in Casablanca, um, 
But to me, the really the the, the genius of it is in in those um, subtleties of what's unsaid. You know, like I've mentioned between Claude Rains and Bogart, or between Bergman and Sam, those little things that they sort of have to allude to um, without coming out and stating them. Um, but I also think that the movie is clearly, given how it's considered one of the greatest movies of all time, um, that it clearly fulfills a lot of what people want when they go to see um, that kind of movie. You know, there's a criticism of maybe that there's – it's funny because I have a quote here and I'm going to look at my note cards because it's a long quote. So i got to go <laughs> find it. Um, but this guy said um, – and it, it, in regards to, to Casablanca, it's, uh, this Italian guy, uh, Umberto Eco, we talked about – it's a very cliched movie in a way, mm -hmm. you know, and he says uh, two cliches make us laugh. A hundred cliches move us for we sense dimly that the cliches are talking among themselves and celebrating a reunion. And I think that's one of the tricks of that screenplay of Casablanca is they have all these things that you recognize from all these different types of stories right. sort of working together. And at no point are you lost or unsure of what to expect or where it's going. Right. You know, and I think that that's really in, in a lot of great movies, that's really a consistent idea. You yeah. know, one of the things from working a long time in the video store is the fastest way to lose your audience is if you fail to meet their expectations. Right. Um, and for that reason, there's guys like and you could say this is a movie star thing or not. But in the video store I worked at and I might have mentioned this actually on other podcasts, you could put Denzel Washington's face on a DVD box for whatever the movie was and people would rent that shit. Because right. they love Denzel Washington, they know what he's going to deliver, right. and it's and, and and their expectations are going to ninety percent of the time they're going to be absolutely met. And it, it, he was hugely popular, like yeah. the biggest star of that one of the biggest stars really as far as like put him on the box and it would sell. Um, right. And I think it was that. And I think Casablanca, the genius of the of the screenplay in Casablanca, is that all of these different cliches and all these different things that sort of taken by themselves seem kind of silly, but all put together. It fits. It works. This story yeah. And and this presentation. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's two things I wanted to bring up about the script that I really liked. Uh, the first is when she first comes back into his life and she kind of asks him how he's doing and he gives some not like says he's fine, essentially. Mm. And she, all she says is you're a bad liar. And that <laughs> one line tells you so much. Like, I love the flashback sequences, but you almost don't even need them. Like yeah, all you need yeah. is her reaction to him and you're a bad liar and it gives you so much subtext and you like I love the fact that they didn't feel the need to painstakingly kind of describe what she's thinking or what he's actually going through. Just like like I know better. I know you. And so you get this shared sense of history in four words, which which efficiency for efficiency's sake is pretty incredible. Like that's something you don't – and some of it's performance, of course, um, but I think it's just a, re a really well-written line. And you talked about the constraints of the system and I guess you know she has this line where she says, you know, he's my husband now and he was my husband when we met. They almost didn't have that in the film because, you know, you don't want to hear about yeah. like, oh, she's cheating on him. But it makes it so much more impactful in every decision that she makes. And then that scene with her and her husband when he kind of tells her, like, I know. <laughs> Is yeah. there anything you want to tell me? Like, I, it's OK. <laughs> and she, of course, says, no, I have nothing to say. But I love the fact that they left that line in there because I think it makes it makes the ending of the film that much more heartbreaking. When she when she leaves with him, because you're rooting for these two. And as a movie viewer who's seen 
romance on screen thousands of times, you're like, somehow they got to end up together. And I love the fact that they don't. I think it, you know, we talked about context and when it's important to kind of, you know, fight for your love and love conquers all. But sometimes, sometimes, you know, the Nazis are coming and it's (laughs) not that time. Go. Yeah, I think. You know, and I know that um, the Casablanca commentary has a wonderful bit by uh, Ebert where he talks about that scene where she first comes in and how she sees Sam and then she starts to realize where she is because if Sam's there, she knows that Rick has got to be there. And so when she realizes that and when she starts to put the pieces together, when she starts to talk to Sam, you can see both that she's still really sad, yeah. you know, and, and that she knows that he is too. You know, and I, I think when he comes out, one of the funniest things for me, and I laugh every time, is when he finally comes out and gets mad at Sam uh, for playing the song, the speed with which Sam packs up that piano <laughs> Bye. and gets the hell out of there. <laughs> it's like unbelievable, you know, like he's got that stool on top of that thing and he's rolling it away like nobody's business, right? This and I was think that never that here. Is, yeah. <laughs> in that scene where they finally uh, come to terms with their uh, common interests and sort of all of the subtext that they have been exchanging sort of finally comes to a thing where they're walking away together and they both sort of decided to find their moral center and to grow mm. their backbones and to stick their necks out, which is something that they hadn't done before. Um, one of my favorite things is when he drops the Vichy water in the garbage can and kicks it, you know, just for good measure <laughs> to show that yeah. he's moved on from that and moved on to something else. So I think I was talking about how that, you know, the scene with uh, Bergman and Sam and uh, Bogart um, when they reunite, there is a great scene. But to me personally, the relationship between Claude Rains and Bogart and the way that ends um, the film is to me the sort of the best two performances and the best relationship in the film. Right. Nice. Okay. So let's talk about uh, production value. Um, so of course there, I kind of briefly mentioned this before. There's a couple, there's a couple things that stand out, you know, to 2016 viewers. There's, you know, the, <laughs> the plane flying overhead in the beginning and during the flashback when they're driving and clearly no one is driving that car. Uh, but you know, again, it's 1942. But the thing that, that stuck out to me is how good the cafe looks. Like how it doesn't look like a set, how it looks like – and you kind of talked about how they're moving things around constantly on that set, but it feels lived in. And I love the fact that they they choose to always have music going on in the background, always have discussions going on in the background. So it feels like you are in that nightclub. It doesn't feel like we're in this nightclub and here's this scene within it. Now everyone quiet. I love the fact that they – they took all that into account and there should be lines of dialogue that are maybe a little bit harder to make out or there's distractions or there's other things going on. So I like what they did with the cafe. I think one of the little sub things, uh, little, little details about the the cafe and why I think it is, is why I agree with you. Um, a lot of the extras were not just regular studio extras. Um, a lot of those people were actual emigres. A lot of those people mm. – in the smaller roles, in the bit parts, were people who had fled uh, Germany or Austria or other countries. Um, one of the um, more interesting ones, and I'm going to look to my note card because I'm forgetting his name. Um, one of the more interesting ones is the guy that is the uh, croupier. Mm. Um, because the guy that is the croupier is a French actor who was in Grand Illusion, uh, Rules of the Game, um, several other great uh, French uh, films. Um, and he, you know, had to leave and he mm-hmm. comes to Hollywood 
and he gets these jobs now and he's playing a bit part. He's playing a croupier and that, that was his life afterward. Um, so I think that that, that adds a lot because he's not alone. There's a lot, if you, especially if you go to Wikipedia, there's like 20 or 30 little bit parts. Um, the guy that plays, um, the bartender, um, the Conrad Bite, the guy that plays the German, was uh, fled the Nazis. Right. Um, uh, Peter Lorre fled the Nazis. Um, all of those people, I think, add a depth to that environment and add right. it, make it really feel like, you know what? Yeah, the guy's name is Marcel uh, Dalio, and he was in <laughs> Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game. Uh, Henride, Paul Henride was an emigre. Uh, Conrad Bite already mentioned. Peter Lorre already mentioned. Kurt Bois, the guy that plays the pickpocket, you know, the guy that steals the pickpocket, um, also an emigre. Um, the guy that plays the waiter, S.C. Zakal, also an emigre. You know, all of these exiles in the cast, I think, make it especially, you know, there's a famous story where they sing the the Marseillaise, you know, they sing the, mm. the, the, the anthem, dueling anthems or whatever they called it. Um, then the power of that scene and how people really were moved because as they were doing that scene, a lot of them realized, oh, wait. Um, Hollywood is our Casablanca, you know, right. and we fled and this is where we are. And I think that is a detail that in, in, to me is really quite modern, um, yeah. you know, and it's really like something that you would more likely to encounter today where they're going for authenticity and they're going for like a trueness, which wasn't as common, I think, in that era. And this is one detail that I think makes the club, like you say, a very effective set and a very effective location. And a lot of that, I think, is the bit parts. Right. And the cast, you know, and I, I look, yeah, I'm, I'm biased. Like one of the things I love about <laughs> watching old movies is finding people like um, the guy that's my avatar on Twitter, John Ridley, you know, the guy that plays Eddie Mars in The Big Sleep. And how these guys come in and out of all these different movies, you know, and, and I love that. I love that capturing of the era through the character actors and the, and the bit parts and the people that show up over and over again in like a Warner Brothers studio movie. Yeah, and I think, you know, that scene you bring up, the the scene with the song, I think that emotion really reads. Even if you don't even if you don't know the history, you don't know what that song is, it still it still hits home and that emotion really comes through. And now that you bring up the fact that all that kind of authenticity that, that they brought to this film, it makes sense why. That like there's probably not a lot of acting going on in that moment. Like that's all very <laughs> raw and near the surface and real. Yeah, and one of the things you you asked me about before, and I'm kind of taking over and transitioning into something else, is like why why did the movie sort of appeal to me? And this is where I'll tell you, like before we started, I was telling you a little bit about. As you probably know, there was a dictator in Spain named Franco mm -hmm. who came into power in the 30s. Um, my grandfather was on the opposite side um, and briefly had to leave Spain uh, and hide in Norway for several years during and after the Spanish Civil War. Um, my grandfather was only able to returned to Spain because he made some very sort of uh, compromising deals with the fascism, with the fascist in power in his province to sort of allow him to return. Uh, but nonetheless, my father, when he graduated from medical school, um, because I'm Spanish, you know, I came, uh, I, I was born in America, but we came here because my father, because he was a member of a family that had resisted the fascists, was unable to get a job after medical school in Spain and was forced to leave the country. And one of the interesting things about where he went, which was Houston, uh, Texas, where there's a medical center, was that he immediately sort of fell in with a group of guys, whether they had fled po po communist Poland or other people from Spain or people who had fled conflicts in South America. There were all these foreign doctors who sort of came together and became friends in Houston, Texas, because they had all, for a variety of reasons, 
one of my dad's best friend was a Polish guy who would like swam out of Poland to escape the communists, um, which is like the opposite of my father who left Spain to escape the fascists. But they became friends because they were both exiles and they were both emigrates to the United States. And so for me, the movie and even the Claude Rains character, who reminds me a little bit about my dad, uh, you know, reminds me a little of my dad with the same accent and sort of being mm-hmm. short and sort of a snarky uh, guy. Um, <laughs> you know, like these these people um, really, really I really related to them when I saw the movie, when I understood that, you know, as the son of someone who had been exiled to me. It was, you know, and not an exile like explicit, but just an exile because he couldn't get a job because of he, right. of who he was. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think this movie really resonates with me. And while some of those scenes where the exile sort of bond in opposition to the different countries that they left, um, it has great meaning for me. All right. Uh, so we'll talk about that more when we get to the theme. I wanted uh, quickly to talk about any favorite scenes uh, maybe that we didn't mention. Uh, the only thing like I didn't mention, and I kind of wanted to get your take on it, is what you thought in general of the flashbacks, because I really enjoy them. Like I did mention earlier that, you know, given that one line, like it's not wholly necessary. I think we get a pretty good grasp of, of their relationship, but I think seeing it from the happy beginnings to basically him getting his heart ripped out at the train, I think, I think really solidifies our care of Humphrey Bogart's character. What did you think of those sequences? Well, you know, they're not my favorite sequences. Um, I'm not sure. I didn't read a lot about the production history of the movie and I could be wrong, but they had a feel of being added later. They had a feel, like you're mm-hmm. saying, of not necessarily being something that you had to have. Maybe it was something that they figured you might need, and so they and they put it in later. Because I I don't know if I like them because they do seem, um, and maybe you know it's interesting because as filmgoers in 2016, we're much more sophisticated uh, right. with film language than they were in 1942. So the things that seem repetitive to us. Um, or, or unnecessary to us might not have seemed so unnecessary to people. One of the favorite things I like to talk about is how if you watch old old silent films or early silent films, there's a lot of emphasis put on watching people move through space on the screen because when movies first came out, that was amazing. Right. We'd never seen this before. Yeah. Never seen before. You never seen a train come at you. Never seen a bullet come at you. Never seen a guy walk down the stairs and across the room and out into the cab. Right. You know. But if you did that now. People be like, yeah, I know he's going to walk out of the building. You know, like how else does he get outside? You know, like they don't need you don't need that anymore. You you need to hold my hand. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you're so much more like sophisticated. So in some way, I don't want to be too critical about some of the things that seem sort of clumsy to me, like the effects, you know, Um, because people back then, they didn't expect uh, uh, seamlessness in their uh, cinema sort of presentations that we do today. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Are there any other favorite scenes that you wanted to bring up before we jumped into the theme? Well, I, I like uh, I, I mentioned the, the conversations with uh, Sidney Greenstreet and Bogart, where they're both sort of talking about um, buying and selling the bar. And, and they both are sort of flip sides of the same coin. You know, they're both in the same business, but one guy's maybe committed a little bit more to Casablanca than the other guy. Um, you know, you don't get the sense that um, uh, Sidney Greenstreet is dealing with the kind of baggage that Humphrey Bogart is dealing with. Um, and I think those two scenes between them are, are really good to me. I really I love Sidney Greenstreet. You know, he didn't start acting until he was like 62. He didn't do a ton of movies, um, but really, really, really does amazing work in, in, in just about every movie that you'll see him in. Right. 
The other thing I keep thinking is the the final scene. I find myself wondering if this loses anything because even with people who've never seen this movie, everybody knows those lines. Everybody knows that scene. Do you think it loses any of its impact because it's become kind of a part of the cultural lexicon? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think that touches on something that's really annoying uh, to me in some ways. When you go, say, to go see an old movie at a, at a repertory screening and you go to the New Beverly or one of these places that shows old movies and people in the crowd are not understanding it as it is. They're understanding it sort of ironically. And there's right. a lot of laughter that uh, um, comes into inappropriate things or that it's not meant to be funny, but people are unable to take it seriously because of how they view it as stiff and sort of uh, constructed. And so while I agree with you that maybe a modern audience would see that and because they have it um, already in their brains as one way, maybe it would lose uh, the impact that it would have on an audience seeing it for the first time. But like I quoted that Italian guy before, you're dealing with a story that is so steeped in these cliches and these ways of telling that story that it's really, I think that's the reason it's one of the most uh, uh, rewatched and successful movies of all time is that even a very cynical person sort of is welcomed in by the reunion of all those cliches and they're comforted by these really like familiar ideas of who people are and how they will act and how they will make sacrifices and how they will grow and how they will change. Yeah, absolutely. And so I hope that people can take it on its face and really, really enjoy it. But, you know, what do I know? I'm wrong about a lot of things. (laughs) Aren't we all? Aren't we all? All right. So let's talk about the theme. So I I kind of went – it's interesting that this theme was connected to you so much personally because I went back and forth between three or four things. I was thinking about, you know, infidelity. I was thinking about kind of – you know, isolationism, like him kind of being a man apart. And I, I ended on exile because I feel like it's, it's the most common theme that runs through this movie because Casablanca is a place of exile. Like, as we've kind of talked about, everybody there is in exile. So I thought like we'd have more to talk about. So it's interesting that it ended up being so personal to you. That was just kind of a, I mean, I could pat myself on the back, but that's just a lucky circumstance. So (laughs) yeah, no, exile is part of my background. So I really, I, I think I've always understood and related to the movie as, as, you know, someone who grew up in a country, you know, I grew up a Spanish kid with a Spanish name in Southern southwestern texas in the south Hmm. with a dad with a really thick spanish accent you know who was clearly not welcome in his own country so to me you know there was always a sense as part of my identity that i wasn't really quite supposed to be you know where i was um and i think that that in the movie is something that i relate to because all those people are not where they're supposed to be or not where they expected to be um in, in their lives or in that time Right. Where do you think that puts like our kind of two characters at the end of the film as they walk off to the the beginning of their beautiful friendship, like two exiles that seem relatively comfortable with that, with where they are in their lives? What, how do you think that differs from kind of everyone else in this film who is constantly getting back, wanting to get back to a home, to a to a place that they're comfortable, whereas these two guys seem to be able to kind of adjust on the run? Yeah, I, I think they're they're both different guys i mean if you look at Mm. humphrey bogart the illusion that he actually worked with the spanish that's one thing they talk about that he fought with the loyalists in spain like my grandfather did um and you know he ran guns against the italians in um ethiopia and so you have a guy that historically was you know at one point committed to causes greater than himself and then this love affair and losing so badly in france 
and having to run away um, burned him. And right. he was unwilling to stick his neck out again. And then by the end, he's willing to do so. Um, I think with Claude Rains, the character is a little bit different because Claude Rains is, is a guy that's, you know, a functionary there who's, you know, sort of bosses don't agree with him anymore. And now he's still there, but now he's got to answer to these German guys and to these other French guys he doesn't like. And he has to bury his true feelings, you know. And right. I think his transition is a little different because he's like almost coming out of the closet and saying like, you know what? I agree with you, uh, Sam, you know, or Rick, uh, more than I agree with um, the system under which I'm um, living. And that supposedly there was going to be a sequel called, uh, you know, Brazzaville or whatever place that they mm -hmm. referred to the point to the next. And I kind of would have liked to have seen that, you know, yeah. these two guys. Give me that, so but even just like show me them on the way. Like, give me a buddy yeah. film with these two guys. I would absolutely watch yeah. that. It's interesting because yeah, I, I resent that there weren't more sequels back then, so that we could have gotten a few Casablanca sequels like back in the forties. Right. We like, have all these shitty sequels now. <laughs> we can't get a good one. After for they the did 40s. a TV, they did a TV show with David Soul called like uh, you know like they and they can't you know, but they left a lot of money on the table as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. So I started thinking about Exile from kind of like the psychological perspective because we recently did an episode uh, with the aforementioned Mike from War Machine versus Warhorse on Gone Baby Gone and we talked about kind of place identity and how important where you're from and where you stay is. It kind of, it actually affects how you see the world. So it makes me wonder like all the, even not even the main characters, but these kind of side characters, these ancillary characters, these backgrounds people what that experience is like to be stuck in a place that is not home and to desperately want to get back there and either feel like i can't go back there you know like like your dad or i'm literally not allowed to go back there you know like people in other situations and what that does to kind of your sense of stability and it and it kind of makes sense that we have all these side characters that are kind of kind of dirty kind of doing things underhanded because they're in this they're in this place where they have no barometer anymore. Like they're just kind of stuck in this new place and have to make the best of things. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was going to sort of, I don't know, to talk to you about was the idea of the, the definition of exile, because for example, there's one movie that I was going to mention. Uh, you know, I think it's Austrian. It's called Revanche. There's a criterion DVD of it. And this is a guy who's sort of an ex con and he has to go live with his dad in the country in this place he hates. You know, and he's sort of an exile and there are lots of different types of exile. So to define, I mean, it's such a powerful theme in that people are exiled from themselves. They're exiled from their place. They're exiled from the role they want for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think like the definition of exile is so broad and almost so, so consistent in all these different movies, whether it be like a guy who's exiled from an actual physical place or maybe a guy who's exiled from the life he wants or a guy who's exiled from his feelings, or, you know, these, this separation from your true self, you know? And, right. and, and to go back to Casablanca, that's what is so powerful to me about the relationship between Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart, is that they both sort of come back to themselves. Yeah, yeah, the absolutely. The I agree. All right. Um, so the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, uh, which, as you <laughs> mentioned, did you have... 
No, no, no. It's funny because I, I was doing some work to sort of like uh, prepare to talk a little bit about Allied and there's no reviews. You know, I read a little bit of the plot summary. Um, I took a look at all the trailers. Um, yeah, that's about all there is to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I as you mentioned. Like the writer, like the guy, he's he's written a few things like uh, like Eastern Promises, Dirty Pretty Things. There's right. a couple movies did that I really like. Um, and so – I'm excited for it because I like him. I'm not a Zemeckis fan. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. Really, it doesn't. So, I remember seeing this trailer and I was like, Robert Zemeckis did this. This does not feel like a Robert Zemeckis movie at all. But I like, I like the two stars. Uh, and because I'm like bereft of of creative thinking, I saw the trailer and I was like, well, it's 1942. It's in North Africa. You know, good enough. Let's let's pair this with Casablanca. Yeah, well, I mean, what, yeah, well what I what I from what I can tell, perhaps Marion Cotillard, who's a great actress, yes. um, is exiled in some way because she ends up, you know, in London with him. Right. So, so maybe she's the exile. Um, one of the funny things I noticed in watching the trailer was how much action there is compared to uh, Casablanca. You know, yeah. Casablanca, maybe a couple dudes get shot. Um, right and uh, you know and they kind of line you up in the movie like by the way we're gonna arrest this guy just so you know it's coming so be prepared (laughs) yeah i thought that was pretty striking you know um Mm. i think i might give allied a chance i liked flight i like some of the zemeckis um things in flight there there have been some zemeckis developments that i've sort of liked um but i'm not a huge uh, zemeckis guy um and i'd be interested to see whether or not the movie uh, works. Yeah, I mean, if if Pitt and Cotillard aren't in this movie, I I probably wait. You know, I, I probably wouldn't check it out uh, because, like, I think Robert Zemeckis is very much a hit or miss guy. And I think his career is really interesting, actually, because I think he showed, of course, a lot of promise in his early career, but then got enamored with technology and then decided to make a bunch of fucking cartoons. Uh, so, you know, we well, got. I will tell everyone, go back and watch used cars. Uh, you know, like there you go. Some of that early stuff, you know, and I'm not a back to the future guy. I'm not, mm-hmm. um, some of the more recent things, like you said, when he got into motion capture and all that stuff right. like that, what that, none of those movies worked for me, Same. but flight worked for me. Okay. And I'm, and I'm, I'm excited to see if this one works too. Um, cause he knows how to put a movie together oh, from yeah. a managerial perspective. So, you know, if all the elements are together, I think it might end up being an exciting movie and the trailers are, are pretty good. Right. Um, so we'll just have to see. Yeah, right with you on that. Looking at the IMDb, and I have to get this, I, I must say, um, I'm ahead. looking at Brad Pitt, and he is working on a movie that's coming out next year called War Machine. And I had no <laughs> idea that Mike Denniston, you know, that the Mike <laughs> Denniston story was so was such a big deal. Like, yeah, Mike, know, I actually, I actually talked to Brad him about Pitt this. In the movie. <laughs> I actually talked to him about this. He's annoyed because I think it's going to be like one of those that that gets released uh, on streaming. I think it's like a Netflix thing or or one of those other sites. So he's pissed because it's not, you know, a studio release. Like, if you're going <laughs> to make a movie after me, you should at least have the courtesy to give me a big opening. So I feel so bad for not taking Mike Dennis more seriously frankly like if uh, i knew never Brad say that i <laughs> <laughs> was putting out a movie I, I would just like it blows my mind really yeah absolutely <laughs> like where's that money like come yeah on, Mike. <laughs> brad pitt and tilda swinton kind of that that looks yeah. pretty good to me yeah absolutely uh so why don't you tell people uh, how to find you online and more importantly how to get your books 
Um, well, I would recommend everyone to uh, give False Ransom a try. Like I said, it's Pulp Fiction uh, um, set in the 30s about con men in L.A. I do a lot of historical research, a lot of language research. I try to have everything as it was in the 30s. Even the style of the book is written like a traditional pulp uh, novel. And um, I recommend people to go to Amazon and get that um, for $4. And I also ask people to go ahead and follow me on Twitter. Um, right now, my account's locked, but if you're a regular human being i will follow you back no problem and my twitter is at eddie mars attack um which is my long time uh internet handle and i would love to get more followers i would love to interact with people online i love talking movies and um i hope people will be interested in uh my uh own podcast when we finally get it together uh clerk cast which will be on itunes or spotify nice and i highly recommend following very good follow on twitter uh, always, always engaging and interesting. So definitely check him out on Twitter and buy his book, like I did. I mean, it's only three or yeah, four thank bucks. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. That makes me feel really good. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review of Allied, as long as Mike and I can connect over this uh, weird holiday weekend. But here's hoping we make that work. Um, if you want to connect with the show more, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The best way is to follow me on Twitter. I'm at PC Case Study, and I'm always very responsive and waiting to hear your feedback, so you can find me there. You can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever other platform you listen to. But if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can donate on a per-episode basis. And if you donate enough, you can even choose the movie I watch. So lots of cool opportunities there. And if you want more great movie podcasts, just head over to followingfilms.com to find other great shows like War Machine vs. War Horse and The Best and Worst of the Best. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. <laughs> yeah, it was like, and it just like froze in mid-word, and you were like, that was a really good scene, and I was like, what was? <laughs> oh, I or maybe it. we could talk about War Machine when it comes out, and we can really compare it. To we'll be knowledge. the only two. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, is Mike, is this the really the true Mike Dennison story, or are they taking a lot of liberties? <laughs> he doesn't look a lot like Brad Pitt, so, I mean, that'll break well, his heart. But... Is playing Mike. Oh, <laughs> maybe. She can maybe. play anything, so, <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. I'm away